Amen. Aren't you grateful for the Holy God Amen. and that Christ ushers us into the presence of the Holy God and He is the thrice Holy God. Holy, holy, holy. I was reading this morning in Exodus chapter 33, that wonderful passage where Moses, he's been interceding on behalf of the people who've sinned, the whole golden calf episode. After that, Moses is praying for the people and acknowledging the fact that it's the presence of God among his people that sets them apart from anybody else on earth. And Moses has just a personal time of worship and asks the Lord, show me your glory. And God hides Moses there in the cleft of the rock and says, I'm going to make all of my goodness pass before you and you're going to catch a glimpse of me as I pass from behind, but you can't look upon my face and live because no man can see God and live. And it's interesting in that later episode, you know, Moses, as he would spend time in God's presence and intercede for the people, he would come back out and the people would see that Moses radiated, his face beamed just with the glory of God. Let me tell you, worship changes a man or a woman. When we worship in God's presence, it has this impact of just changing us. You can't be in the presence of God and remain the same. And what's so amazing, John picks up on that in his gospel in chapter 1 and says that we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, full of truth. And he's referring to Jesus there. And aren't you thankful that he is full of grace? That's a good word for sinners like us. He's full of grace and he's full of truth. And so praise his name. Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me once more to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and in just a moment, I want to read from verse 8 through verse 15 as we continue on in our study through this New Testament letter. You know, one of the greatest characters in the Bible is a man whom we barely know. A man who was influential for the cause of Christ, but for the most part, he remained in the shadows. You might be able to say that this man was content to be number two, the number two guy. And we meet him in the book of Acts. And no sooner than we meet him, it seems as if he slips off into the sands of time while the story focuses on his more well-known counterpart. And of course, the man that I'm referring to, his name is Barnabas. And his name literally means son of encouragement, consolation. And based upon what we know about Barnabas from the scriptures, he certainly lived up to his name. Because Barnabas was an encourager. Now you say, okay, well, why are you telling us about Barnabas? Well, I do so because I have this suspicion that Barnabas had an, an impact and an influence on the Apostle Paul's life. And yes, Paul may have emerged as the stronger leader. Paul was the apostle. But don't think for one second that Barnabas's contribution to the kingdom has gone unnoticed because Barnabas may have had a bigger impact on Paul and his life than you or I realize. After all, the Bible says in Proverbs 27, verse 17, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. The people that we spend our time with, we can't help but become like. They have an impact, whether for the good or for the bad, 
I want to have a, a good impact on those that I spend time with. Now, why do I tell you all of that? Well, because in this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul uh, demonstrates the characteristics of an encourager. And I think that's something that he learns from Barnabas in those early years of ministry. Paul's words in this paragraph, they almost ooze with kindness and consideration. By this point in his life, he's spent roughly 25 years on the mission field. He's been in the furnace of affliction where the depth of his character has been forged by the master. And he's very much still the ambitious man that we know him to be. He's Paul the pioneer, Paul the missionary, the bold apostle, a man who has the mind of a scholar, the zeal of a prophet, the boldness of a missionary. But it's evident to me that he also has the heart of an encourager. He's a shepherd. And Paul's words here reveal the tenderness of his heart. He says words like this, I thank my God for you. It takes a humble person to communicate words of gratitude for another. He says, I serve with my spirit. I long to see you. He tells these Romans, I've often intended to come to you. I'm obligated to preach the gospel. I'm eager to preach the gospel. And so all of this tells me that Paul is a man who has come to understand the value of an encouraging word. And so you've got your Bible open there, Romans chapter 1, verse 8. Let's stand as we read this paragraph together. The Bible says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I want to speak from this subject this morning some encouragement for my friends. Here, the Apostle Paul is communicating some words of encouragement here in this introductory section to his letter to the Romans. And so, Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for the encouragement that the gospel brings. Lord, I'm so thankful for the presence of your Holy Spirit. And God, as we've been powerfully reminded through song this morning, you are the holy God, and it's Jesus who ushers us into the presence of this holy God. And so, Lord, as we are here, and Father, as our hearts are receptive to your word, my prayer is that you would change us. May your word wash over us, producing change in our hearts and lives. Empower me and help me as I stand and preach. In Jesus' precious name I pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. You may be seated. 
This section in the first chapter, and really there's only one other section like this as we come to the end of the book of Romans, but these are really the only autobiographical passages in the entire book. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, it's Paul who's speaking just personal words here, both in his introduction, he does the same thing later in his conclusion, and so the vast majority of Romans is theological instruction. And that's followed by practical exhortation. But here, it's almost as if we're given a glimpse into Paul's own heart and life. And, and this paragraph here from Paul really reminds you and me of the value of encouragement. Never lose sight of the importance of encouragement, both in your own life and in the life of people around you. And so I find here in this passage really a key principle that is of utmost importance and the key principle is this. As Christian men and women, you and I should look for ways to mutually strengthen and encourage one another in our common faith. That is, we should look for ways where we can be intentional to communicate words of encouragement, gospel encouragement, spirit-led, spirit-driven encouragement in the family of faith because we need that type of encouragement from our brothers and our sisters. We need encouragement in ministry. We need encouragement in life. We need encouragement in service. And that demands that we be encouragers to one another in the church. Now, if these Christians living in the city of Rome needed anything, it was encouragement and affirmation. And by the way, isn't it amazing how just a little bit of encouragement and affirmation goes a long way in your life? Or someone comes alongside you and maybe they put their arm around your shoulder or maybe they send you a written word just communicating something that's encouraging. I mean, that almost just puts a pep in your step and gives you an extra measure of strength for the journey of life. So you can imagine how this letter from the Apostle Paul would have greatly encouraged the spirit of these believers and emboldened them in their faith. As far as their background is concerned, uh, you know that living in the city of Rome would have been a very difficult place to live if you were a follower of Jesus. Because Rome, this was a place where under the cover of darkness, every vice had come to be found. Nero was the emperor in Rome during the time of Paul's writing. Now, he's a young emperor at this point, and he's going to reign some 14 years there in the city of Rome over the vast Roman Empire. And history tells us that Nero went mad in the final years of his rule. If you know anything about Nero at all, you know that he left really a trail of blood and carnage in his wake everywhere he went. I mean, we're talking about somebody who was so vicious that he even murdered his own mother out of his own sense of insecurities. Um, Many historians believe that it was Nero who set fire to the city of Rome in 64 AD, and then he blamed it on the Christians in what led to the first official form of imperial persecution against the church. He even had Christians covered in tar and pitch and then impaled upon wooden stakes to provide light for his garden parties. So yeah, Rome was a very difficult, difficult place to be a follower of Jesus. You feel like it's getting difficult to be a follower of Jesus in 21st century America? Well, listen, it's not quite got to the degree of what it was like to be a follower of Jesus in 1st century Rome. Never forget the fact that God has his people in those difficult places. 
God has his people in cities all across America. God has his people in cities and countries all across this world. Never forget that. But this was a difficult place, Rome, to be a believer in Jesus. And so you can imagine the great encouragement that it was to these Christians' hearts to receive this letter from Paul, who in verse 7, he's reminding them of God's love for them. Even though they're in that difficult city of Rome, they're not beyond the reach of God's grace and purpose. And so I want you to see with me a few of the ways that Paul seeks to encourage the church. And then we'll make some application for our own lives. So number one, notice Paul's commendation of these Romans. He's speaking words of commendation to these believers there in verse number eight. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, even though Paul has never been to Rome, He's not met these believers personally. He wants them to know that their name and their reputation precedes them. And so he has these kind words, these gracious words that he's going to speak over the church here in his opening statements. And so what are these words? Well, to begin with, they're words of gratitude. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. You know, one of the things that mean the most to us or whenever we receive a personal note from someone who is communicating gratitude to God on our behalf or someone's taken the time, someone's taken the effort to just say thank you to us for something that perhaps we've done or helped them out along the way, that kind of thing. There's something powerfully uplifting about that when we communicate our gratitude to God for the people that he's placed in our lives. So pay attention that Paul is grateful to God for what he's heard about these Romans. He's grateful to God for his grace in their lives, demonstrated by their faith. And so his words of gratitude are immediately followed up by words of affirmation, secondly. Specifically, he's grateful for these believers because their faith is being proclaimed in all of the world. And so if you think about it, From its situation there in the capital city of the Roman Empire, this church would have had really good means of communication with other churches in other cities across the empire. Because Rome was the capital, there were people that were constantly coming and going from Rome to other places around the empire. Christians would be coming and going as their business or travel would bring them there to the city. And so the church might have this widespread influence. And from the way that Paul is addressing these believers... Uh, it, it, it basically communicates the idea that not only had the church had influence, but the church had stewarded its influence very well. It was setting a good example to those who were believers everywhere. And so Paul is building them up. He's, he's speaking words of affirmation over their life based upon what he's heard. He says, you have a genuine faith. It's obvious that God has done a work among you. And not only is your faith genuine, but your faith is infectious. It's a contagious faith. Uh, People are talking about your faith everywhere around the empire. And it's not just simply that people were talking about their faith, but that the faith was being shared. The gospel was spreading. People were coming to the faith as the result of their witness for Christ. And so that's the way that it always is. Let me ask you this question. What do you want to be known for as a man or a woman? Uh, if we were to apply it corporately to our church, what do we want to be known for as a local fellowship? 
You know, churches can be known for lots of different things. And I've, I've discovered that we're far too easily impressed with stuff that ultimately doesn't really matter as far as heaven is concerned. We tend to be enamored with buildings and budgets. We tend to be enamored with numbers and burgeoning crowds and all those kinds of things that we... But let me tell you something. God is not so much impressed with the stuff that impresses us. And so a church can be known for the personality of its leader. A church can be known for the dynamic ministry that it's had in various areas. And all of that's real and great and has its proper place. But never forget the fact, may we be known as a fellowship who has faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. May we be known by the faith that we... You know what faith is? It's taking God at his word and acting upon it. Paul is saying, church, you're known for your faith. You're known for the fact that you've received the word of God and it's changed your life and you're acting upon that word. And so the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. The Bible says that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And let me tell you something. There's a lot of sinful ministry done in the name of Jesus that's not offered in faith. And so Paul is speaking these words of gratitude and these words of affirmation. And then notice he's speaking words of intercession. He's saying, whenever I think about you Roman believers, I can't help but remember you when I pray. So that in verses 9 and 10, we're given a glimpse into the prayer life of the Apostle Paul. And he wants them to know that he's been constantly mentioning them in his prayers in this unceasing manner. And I'm telling you, there are some powerful lessons here for our own prayer lives as believers. Paul was a praying man. And I learned from him that a strong prayer life, it's something that's founded only upon the basis of Jesus' name. Notice he says there in verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. He's saying, when I go to God in prayer, it's on the basis of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only through Jesus Christ that I have an audience with God. I'll never forget that I had the opportunity to pray at a particular event, and it was political in nature. And some of the bigwigs behind the event met with a couple of us who were to offer prayers of invocation at the event. And this person just wanted to sort of politely remind us that there are going to be a number of people in the crowd from various backgrounds. Long story short, they basically say, don't do anything offensive. Don't pray in the name of Jesus. And so I get up to pray. First words, I'm not kidding. Out of my mouth are these words. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we come before you. Amen. Because let me tell you, there's no other way to pray. There's no other way to pray. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If you want your prayer to be heard before God, you've got to go to God on the basis of his Son. You can't go to God any other way. Only Jesus has opened up the way of access. And so Paul is saying, I'm, I'm praying to God the Father through Jesus Christ, his Son. And Paul teaches me that a strong prayer life intentionally remembers other people. He says there in verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. It's amazing when you consider the fact that he's never even met these believers before, and yet he's been praying for them. Let me ask you a question. Your own prayer life. 
How much time do you spend praying for other people and the needs of other people in your own prayer life? Because I'll be honest, if you're like me, so much of my own prayer life, it just deals with issues and things that are pertinent to my own heart and life. But I'm ashamed to say this, that at times, the place that I leave, as far as my prayer life is concerned, for other people may be minimal. When in reality, we need to remember other people when we pray, don't we? That's what intercession is. It's praying for others. It's taking other people and their concerns and their burdens and their frustrations and their lives. You're taking them before God in prayer. And then Paul teaches me something else here about prayer, that a strong prayer life, it's not inconsistent with active service. Because in verse 9, he uses that word serve there. He says, God is my witness. He's saying, God can testify to the truth of what I'm saying. I've genuinely been praying for you, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. That word serve translates a word. It's a Greek word, the same word we get the word liturgy from or liturgical. It's this idea of service of worship. So Paul is saying, I'm I'm praying and I'm serving, and he understands that those two things are not mutually exclusive or inconsistent with one another, but prayer and service must always be joined together. I think sometimes we sort of come up with this false dichotomy, and we think, well, there are those in the church that are called to the ministry of prayer, and then there are those in the church who are called to the ministry of service. I'll serve, I'll leave the praying to someone else, or I'll pray and I'll leave the serving to someone else. Listen, they go hand in hand. Paul says, I'm praying and serving. I'm serving and praying. And there's power, power that's given to our service whenever it's done in Jesus' name, And that power comes only through prayer. And so both prayer and effort, these ought to go together. Robert Haldane says that to pray without laboring is to mock God, but to labor without prayer is to rob God of His glory. And until these are joined, the gospel will not be extensively successful. And so every effort that we do in the name of Jesus ought to be absolutely immersed in an attitude of prayer. doesn't matter if you're teaching Sunday school class, if you're working with children, you're working in the student ministry, you're serving in the music ministry, if you're teaching, if you're preaching, if you're a greeter in Jesus' name at the door. All that we do has got to be immersed in prayer so that it might be empowered by the Spirit of God. And then notice that this strong prayer life also provides direction to our activity. How had Paul been praying exactly? Well, he tells the church in verse 10, he says, I've been asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So that means he's been making it a matter of prayer to seek God's direction in both the timing and the nature of his visit to Rome. He deeply wants to go to Rome. He wants to see these believers, but he understands that ultimately it's subject to the will of God in his life. And the point here, it's God's Spirit who really provides direction to our activity and our service, but he only does so as we pray. Prayer must be aligned with the will of God. Didn't Jesus teach us to pray this way? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Listen to this. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus himself prays this way in the Garden of Gethsemane, doesn't he? 
He's saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. 1 John 5.14 says this, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us and what we ask, then we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. So when you pray, can you say that your prayer needs and your prayer requests are in keeping with God's will? And if you can say that, then that's something that can bring confidence to your prayer life. And so this is how Paul is praying. And his prayer, it's, it's evident to me that prayer is what infuses Paul's ministry with power. He'll say this down in verse number 11. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. In other words, God would use him to have a strengthening effect on their lives. And so that tells me ministry, it's not about what I attempt to do for God, but it's what he does through me as I would yield my life to him. The same thing applies to your own life and whatever you determine to do. And I can't help but think that so much of our fatigue and so much of our frustration, oftentimes it stems from this lack of dependent prayer. What prayer does in your life as a believer is that it brings you into proper focus and alignment with God's will and God's spirit and God's own thoughts. One man says it this way, prayer focuses our attention on God and his gospel. Obviously, this was the case in Paul's life. It's this more than anything else that I've found prayer to do for me personally. It has redirected my focus so that I've begun to see things from God's perspective. When that has happened in my life, then some of the things in my life that have been most distressing have faded in importance. The things that we worry about, the things that we fret about, the things that just often keep us up at night, the things that we can't change, things that perhaps are beyond our ability to control. When you commit that to God in faith and you pray, it's amazing how in that attitude and posture of dependence before God that God redirects your mind and your focus away from those things that distract you to himself, and then his peace and his joy floods your soul. That's what prayer does. All right, so these are Paul's words of commendation to the Romans. Now, notice secondly... What about his concern for the Romans? He's deeply concerned for these believers that he loves, so much so that he's encouraging them in what he has to say. And his concern is really expressed through the way that he prays for these believers. He's saying here, I, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you so that we can be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He's saying, I know that when I come to see you, we'll have this impact on one another's lives. I'll be an encouragement to you. You'll be an encouragement to me. And so what is his concern? Well, notice how he desires to pay them a personal visit. He wants to pay the church this personal visit. Again, this is on the tail end of his third missionary journey. He's in the city of Corinth. He's got an offering that he's got to deliver to Jerusalem. After he does so, it's his intention to go to Rome, to spend time with the Roman church, and then he's going to head westward to Spain. 
He wants to preach the gospel in the western part of the empire. And all of that is his plan. But before he does that, he wants to pay these Romans a personal visit. He's grateful that they're believers who share the faith, but he wants to build them up in the faith. Remember, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. And he's not just simply content that they've made decisions for Christ. He wants to see them growing as disciples of Jesus Christ. He wants them to be strengthened in the faith that they have professed. But he has this desire to be mutually encouraged in the faith. I love the word that he uses here, translated as mutually encouraged there in verse number 12. It translates a Greek word. The root word uh, is this word parakaleo. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John 14 describing the Holy Spirit. Paraclete, comforter. One called alongside another. Aren't you grateful to God that you have someone with you in the storms of life? And he's not just beside you, he's living in you. The Spirit of God has a profound ministry, a strengthening ministry in your life, a comforting presence. But it's interesting that Paul takes this word and he's applying it to the relationships that we believers ought to have with one another. That we be mutually encouraged and built up by each other's faith. Paul says, I need your encouragement and you need my encouragement. You're going to have an encouraging effect on me. I'm going to have an encouraging effect on you. It was interesting. This week I was typing this in my sermon manuscript. And you know how autocorrect changes words? (laughs) Sometimes you don't realize that it's changed words until you go back and you reread your notes. For example, my notes say this, the church is to be a family of faith where we are mutually encouraged and strangled by one another. (laughs) Autocorrect. But you know what? I'm thinking, hey, there may be a little bit more truth to that than what we realize. Sometimes you, you do life with other believers. We get at each other's throats at times. We get on each other's nerves at times. I know I get on your nerves. You never get on my nerves. (laughs) The point is, Paul is saying, hey, we're to have this mutual strengthening and encouraging effect on one another's lives. And it's interesting, he's making these statements within a framework of prayer. All of this is fueling his desire to visit these believers So that when he gets there, not only does he desire to simply pay them a visit, but he intends to give them a spiritual gift. He realizes that God will use him in this way, that he'll have something to impart to these believers when he gets there. By the way, you know that that's why when you got saved, God placed you in the family of faith because you have something to contribute. Don't buy into the consumer mentality, which is characteristic of our age, that church is simply a place where I go to receive. I go to get. There's a big difference in coming to church and belonging to the family of faith than going to a spectator sport event or some venue where you receive something in the form of entertainment or something that's a value. Now listen, you do receive. You do gain. You do get. That is wonderful. There are things that we receive when we come together as the body of Christ, but let's never forget the fact that God intends for us to have an encouraging impact and effect on each other, which means that you've been gifted, I've been gifted, so that I can be a blessing to others in the local fellowship. 
And sometimes people get so spiritual, so selfish when it comes to their giftedness. And there's a difference between giftedness and talents. I've known a lot of talented people who knew they were talented people. But it sure is refreshing when you meet people who are spiritually gifted and they don't really realize it. Because their talent and their gift and their skill, it's under the direction and the leadership of the Holy Spirit in their life. And in that way, it's something that builds up the body. It's a blessing to the body. It's an encouragement to the body. And someone says, well, I'll tell you what. See if I give. See if I sing. See if I help out. You know what your problem is? You're so self-centered and so, so focused on yourself that you've made service all about you. It's not about you. Never has been. Never will be. But it's all about Him and it's all about others. The two greatest commandments Jesus said are these. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And the second is likened to it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so that's something that Paul is teaching me here. He realizes that he has something to give, but yet they have something to give to him. By the way, I can testify to this as a pastor. It's amazing the, the impact that you as a congregation have on my life as a shepherd. As I stand and I teach and I preach and I'm imparting spiritual truth, it's really reciprocated. It's, it's a two-way relationship. So that you have just as much of an impact and an influence even in this setting as the man that God has so chosen to bring the word. Your response to that word. What you do with that word. It goes a long way in terms of encouragement both to the preacher and to those around you. But you know, oftentimes we lose our zeal for service, don't we? How might we lose our zeal for service? Well, I think criticism sometimes can lessen our zeal for service. There's always somebody who thinks they've got the spiritual gift of criticism. <laughs> Fatigue, that'll lessen your passion for service. You just get tired and you get weary. Distraction, sometimes that lessens our availability for service. May just be we're distracted. We can't serve. We've got so many other things that we're prioritizing. And something else, don't forget this, but sin will lessen your devotion for service. There's only one thing that'll keep us filled up and fueled up for service, and it's when the Holy Spirit empowers us by means of God's word and prayer. And that's something that Paul recognizes here. And he's communicating this concern to these Christians in Rome. Now listen, he's planning... He's praying, but he's also planning. Prayer doesn't mean that we refuse to make plans. Prayer doesn't mean that we refuse to not think ahead. No, it's evident that Paul has a plan. He's intending to come to Rome. From there, he's going to head west to Spain. And so here he communicates his desire that he longs to reap a, few, a fruitful harvest. He's desiring to pay these Romans a personal visit. He's intending to give them a spiritual gift, but he longs to reap this fruitful harvest. And he says as much there in verse number 13. He's deeply wanting to go to Rome. This is something he's been planning to do, something he's been praying for. But notice that he says there in verse 13, he says, but thus far I've been prevented. 
He's saying, you, you, you folks in Rome need to know that this has been my desire to pay you this visit, but I've been prevented. The word that he uses there translates a word that means to be forbidden or hindered. Have you ever wanted to do something or maybe go somewhere, but for whatever reason you were hindered from doing so? Paul is saying, I've been hindered up until this point from coming to Rome. What is it that often hinders us as Christians in our lives? I heard Dr. David Jeremiah preach a sermon on this, and he, he, he said there are three ways oftentimes that we as Christians can be hindered. And I thought this was really helpful. He said, first, sometimes we're hindered by an unprincipled opponent or opposition. And, and he, he quotes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18, where, where Paul is communicating his desire to want to go to visit the Thessalonians. He's saying, but we had been hindered by Satan. Don't forget that Satan, our enemy, our adversary, opposes gospel ministry. He'll want to do everything he can to hinder the church and its effectiveness, to hinder you as an individual Christian man or woman from being spiritually productive. A second reason that we can be hindered has to do with an unparalleled opportunity. It may be that God has other plans in mind. We're planning to do one thing, but we're hindered by the Holy Spirit because God intends to do something else in our life. Acts chapter 16. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit forbids Paul from preaching in Asia. He then has his sight set north. He wants to go into Bithynia, but he says the Spirit of Jesus kept us from doing so. And it was then that he receives this vision in the night of a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us because that's where the Holy Spirit wanted him to go. And sometimes we may be hindered from doing something that we want to do because God's getting ready to lead us to an unparalleled opportunity. Finished obligations. And that's really where Paul is here as he's writing to the church in Rome. In fact, if you'll go over to chapter 15, I want to, I want to show you something. Toward the end of the letter, he, he communicates this a bit more in depth. I mean, in the first chapter, he simply says, I've been prevented from coming to Rome. But he explains why later on toward the end of the letter. He says in verse 20 of chapter 15, that he always had made it his ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ had already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. He's saying as the apostle to the Gentiles, as a missionary, God's always had me out on the frontier planting churches in those places where there were no churches, making disciples where there were no disciples. And then he says in verse 22, this is the reason why I have often been hindered from coming to you. He's saying, I've had unfinished obligations. It's been my desire to come to Rome, but I'm not finished yet where I am. And yet, though he's been prevented, Paul will still be productive. You may not be where you thought you would be in your life at this point. You may not be doing what you thought you would hope to have been doing at this point in your life. But listen, don't let that discourage you. Don't be unproductive. Be productive wherever you are. Serve God with enthusiasm no matter where it is that he's placed you in your life because you can still be productive. And it may just be that you've been hindered because God's not through with you at that particular point in your life or your se this season that you're in in your life. 
Now, let me tell you something. Paul eventually does make it to Rome, but his prayer is going to be answered in a way far beyond anything that he could have anticipated. Later on in chapter 15, he, again, he's explaining his intentions. He says this in verse 28. He says, when I've completed this service, that is, after I've delivered this relief offering to the impoverished church in Jerusalem, I'll leave for Spain by way of you. So he's making his plan to come to Rome. He's going to establish a base of operations for his ministry west to Spain. He says, I know that when I come to you, I will find you. I'll come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now listen to this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Paul has this idea in his mind that when he gets to Jerusalem, he imagines he's going to encounter some opposition. And if you're familiar with the story in the book of Acts, when he gets to Jerusalem, it is indeed opposition that he experiences. There's a crowd that stirs up trouble in the temple. Paul is arrested. He's brought before the council. There's a group of assassins who put a hit out basically on Paul and they're seeking to take his life, but he's protected under Roman guard and they take him by night to Caesarea. Now listen to this. He's there for two years before he finally appeals to Caesar for his case to be heard so that he finally makes it to Rome, but he doesn't come as the independent missionary that he had hoped to. He comes as a political prisoner. And yet, it was these very circumstances that God's providence had so arranged in his life in response to his praying, in response to the praying of the Roman Christians on his behalf, because this was the means that God ordained to protect him from the opposition that sought to kill him in Jerusalem. We oftentimes confuse God's delays with his denials, don't we? I mean, it could just be that you're just simply being told in your life, not yet. And you've assumed that the reason that God's not responded to your prayer, which you believe to be in keeping with his will, it may just be that it's not in keeping with his timing. He doesn't operate on my timetable. He doesn't operate on your timetable. He operates on his own calendar. And so you may be discouraged because of some unanswered request in your life. You're at the point of despair. But again, have you considered that maybe the answer from the Lord is just simply not yet? Not yet. Because one day when it's all said and done, you're able to look back, you're going to be able to trace God's providential guiding hand in your life, all for His glory and His namesake. One last thing I'll mention has to do with Paul's commitment to the Romans. He's got words of commendation, words of concern, but then notice his commitment that he expresses he says in verse 14, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians. In your mind, you're already thinking Conan, the barbarian there. No, barbarians were just simply those in the empire that didn't speak the Greek language. The Greco-Roman world viewed anyone that perhaps was not as cultured as they were as being barbarian. And that word barbarian came from a word basically bar, 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 bar. That's what it sounded like to Greek ears when they heard those from Germanic backgrounds speaking Germanic languages speaking. 
But Paul's saying it doesn't matter the background. It doesn't matter the person's culture or lack thereof. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel. In fact, he says, I'm under obligation to preach the gospel. Because he recognizes the fact that grace made him a debtor to the world. He realizes that he's been bought at a price, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he is not his own, and so he's going to glorify God with his body. He's going to glorify God with his words. He's going to glorify God with his mind. He's going to glorify God with his ears. He's going to glorify God with his hands. Why? Because he sees himself as being a debtor to grace. He says, I'm in debt to the whole wide world. Don't we sing about it from time to time? Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily, I'm constrained to be. Apply this to your life personally. Let me give you just some quick pointers, just for some personal application here. First, never forget that ministry is about people. Paul's writing a letter, but he's writing this inspired letter to people. People whom he greatly loves, even though he's never met them, but these are people, the people of God, people whom God greatly loves. And how might your life be different if you really began seeing yourself as indebted to the grace of God? Not, not you don't serve to earn salvation. No, you serve from your salvation in gratitude because of the grace of God in your life. And you know something? You've got lost family members. You owe it to them to share the gospel. You owe it to your neighbor. You owe it to your unbelieving coworker or classmates to share the gospel. We owe it to each other in the church to come alongside one another and be encouragers to each other for the sake of the faith, for the strengthening and the building up of the body. We owe that to one another because this is what grace has accomplished in our lives. And something else you need to keep in mind is that no work will ever succeed without prayer. If ministry is about people and we've been called to take the gospel to people, then that means that no work will ever succeed without prayer because prayer is the means by which we're empowered. It's never a substitute for gospel-driven effort, but neither must our best efforts be prayerless. All that we do in the name of Jesus must be saturated in prayer. And then our desires, ultimately, they're subject to God's own purposes. You've got plans. Maybe you've got plans for your children. You know, we parents are notorious for coming up with plans for our children. And that works when they're little. But the older they get, they come up with some ideas, and you think, wow, I didn't see that one coming. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's always the Lord's purposes that will prevail. And so Paul just says here, I've got some encouraging words for my friends. Aren't you grateful for gospel encouragement? Let's stand as we pray this morning. I'm so challenged by the life of the Apostle Paul. Bold witness for Christ. Fearless missionary. Pioneer of pioneers. And yet he's a shepherd 
a shepherd of those in the faith, a man who understands the value of an encouraging word. And it was all due to the fact that his life had been changed by the risen Jesus. What about you? Do you know Christ as your personal Savior? Can you say with confidence that you know that you are a child of God and that you've been born again? If not, then listen right there where you are in an attitude of repentance and faith. Cry out to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, I confess my sin. I believe that you died for me on the cross and that you rose again from the dead. And I confess you as my Lord. And beloved, we are saved by grace through faith. And it's a grace that changes us. Now, some of you, you're in some need of real encouragement in your life. Maybe you feel like you're at the end of your rope. You're weary, you're tired, you're discouraged. You feel like you're barely hanging on by a thread. Can I tell you, your life is not useless. Your past is not worthless. And your future is not hopeless. Because you've got a Savior in Jesus Christ who loves you. And so be encouraged and be strengthened in Christ today. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I sense that there are some real needs that are represented in the room. Maybe you need to respond in prayer and obedience. Maybe you just need to come and find a place in the altar and pray and say, Lord, thank you for being my comforter, my encourager, the Holy Spirit. Thank you for my brothers and sisters in the faith that you've used to encourage me along the way. If you've never been saved, as we sing here in just a moment, I'm going to be standing here down front. Some other pastors will be here. Pastor Mark is right over here. Blythe Wall is right over here to my right. I want to encourage you to come and say, Pastor, I want to be saved. I want to be baptized. I want to join the church. Lord, thank you for your word today. Change us. Mold us and shape us into your own image, oh God. Make us like Christ. The decisions that perhaps we're waiting on, Lord, may we wait in faith and in patience and trusting your timing and your leadership in all things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.